Hi everyone, welcome to the Better Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omar Akhtar. In this podcast, I talk with various experts to find better ways of addressing chronic disease. I hope you find this content beneficial. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Brianne Schroeder about hypermobility syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Hypermobility syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome are among some of the most poorly understood conditions in the medical field. A significant number of patients suffer from these and often do not know where to turn to get an accurate diagnosis, much less excellent treatment for these conditions. The Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, or EDS, are a group of hereditary disorders of connective tissue that are varied in the ways that they affect the body and in their genetic causes. The underlying concern is the abnormal structure or function of collagen and certain allied connective tissue proteins. They are generally characterized by joint hypermobility, joint instability or subluxation, dislocation, scoliosis, and other joint deformities, skin hyperextensibility, abnormal scarring, and other structural weaknesses such as hernias and organ prolapse. They can also cause major gum and dental disease, eye disease, cardiac valve disease, and other life-threatening abdominal, organ, uterine, or blood vessel rupture. The Ehlers-Danlos syndromes are currently classified into 13 subtypes. In all but the hypermobility subtype, Genetic variants have been identified as the cause of this disorder and are part of the diagnostic criteria. We talk about this and much more on today's episode. Now, let's head over to the episode. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Brianne Schroeder, who is originally from upstate New York, where she graduated from New York Chiropractic College in 2018 with a doctorate degree in chiropractic as well as a master's degree in applied clinical nutrition. She is trained in Webster Technique for Pregnancy, uh, certified in acupuncture, and is one of the leading practitioners performing ARP neurotherapy for pain and injuries. Growing up with a connective tissue disorder herself, Dr. Schroeder has walked the same path that many of her patients have when it comes to medical experiences and struggling to be properly diagnosed. In fact, it wasn't until her third year in chiropractic college that she was diagnosed. Ever since then, she has been on a journey to educate not only her patients, but the greater medical community about hypermobility spectrum disorders or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome as well. Um, She has opened her own business so that she can spend time getting to know her patients without the restraint of insurance companies or upper management dictating care, quite similar to myself. And Dr. Schroeder is also part of the International Ehlers-Danlos Allied Healthcare Practitioner Panel and the International Ehlers-Danlos Pediatric Panel. So, uh, Brianne, thank you so much for joining me and speaking to me about this important topic. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. So, we're talking about hypermobility syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And this is certainly a an area where I'm very interested in, but I'm not very experienced in, as a lot of other practitioners are not either. Um, but it's very important because if you are a provider seeing patients that come to you, there will be a subset of patients that you will come with all of these different symptoms and you can't figure out what's going on. And you've tried all of the, let's say, regular therapies and treatment, but you just still can't figure out what's going on and they are not improving. And when you ask them questions, you know, these maybe stranger questions like are your are you are your joints more mobile or your or your skin more stretchy then they may answer yes on some of these questions so 
these are really this category of patients we're talking about. So, and I, I've certainly seen a few of these patients in my practice. And so knowing and being equipped with this information is going to be so important for us. So I'm looking forward to this. I want to start by asking you just definitions and for everyone to get an understanding of what is hypermobility syndrome and specifically what is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Sure. So hypermobility spectrum disorder is exactly what it sounds like. It's a spectrum of the disorder and all of the, it's a grouping of conditions that's basically associated with joint hypermobility. Uh, Hypermobility spectrum disorder is meant to be a diagnosis that's given after you've excluded other connective tissue disorders. And that includes all the 13 types of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome as well as other connective tissue disorders like Marfan syndrome, um, Louis Dietz syndrome, Marfan's, all of that. And EDS is a type of joint hypermobility, and it's usually inherited and usually, like you said, includes the joint hypermobility first and foremost, but also stretchy skin and just fragile connective tissue overall. Okay. So I guess what we're what we mean to say is that there is a certain amount that your joints can always move um, in, in that, uh, let's say, angle is known uh, in in the world of uh, mobility. And anytime you're able to hyperextend that, then you can be put into this category, certainly. So do we know why this occurs? Or do we know some of the, or we can dive into the genetics behind it, maybe, and get an understanding of who might be most susceptible and uh, how likely it is to occur, some of those common things. So it can affect any age, any sex, any race. And joint hypermobility itself can be acquired and joint hypermobility is when five or less joints are affected. If you have more than five joints affected, then that's considered generalized joint hypermobility. And that can be inherited Um, through genetics, usually on the maternal side, but not always. And it can also be acquired in people such as dancers or yogis or um, acrobatic people that are doing something that are stretching their joints beyond that normal range of motion on a daily basis. And they're trying to achieve a certain amount of excessive mobility. Um, But it can also be acquired throughout a patient's life if they have a certain inflammatory process or degenerative arthritic process. Um, And like you said, it does mean that their joints move beyond the normal range of motion, which can lead to early onset of arthritis, osteoarthritis. But the condition itself is a genetic condition where there is a gene mutation that causes a lack of integrity in the connective tissue. And the connective tissue in our body, it binds, supports, and it separates all of the different tissues and organs in the body. So when that gene has a mutation and the connective tissue is affected, the integrity of it, it can affect various systems throughout the body and can affect the patient in a multitude of ways from headaches to joint pain to pelvic floor and bladder dysfunction. 
to just GI disorders, um, you name it, it can be affected because that connective tissue is all throughout our body. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is it safe to say that when we look at like an autoimmune condition, for example, we have certain genetic predispositions, but also have environmental factors that, let's say, turn on those genes um, when you're talking about Hashimoto's or Crohn's disease, things like that. Um, even when you're talking about type 2 diabetes and those types of illnesses where there is a certain genetic predisposition, but there is a huge environmental component, is it safe to say that this is something slightly separate from, from that where aside from your the ones you mentioned, dancers and those people that are um, u- using their joints quite a bit or, or um, they're generally very hypermobile, is it, can we consider this to be something that you will develop if you have the, the genetic predisposition to it? Not always. How it presents and when it presents can be different for each patient, but it's actually very similar to, say, autoimmune conditions or Hashimoto's that presents after a respiratory affection. Um, people that have this mutated gene can live their whole lives and never know that they have it. Oftentimes, the gene um, presents itself after a major stressful activity in the patient's life. So a lot of the times we'll talk about, you know, when did you first start having your symptoms? And there's usually some sort of, whether it's mental, emotional, or physical, some sort of major stressor in the patient's life that kind of triggers the gene to actually express itself. Okay. So very similar to other illnesses where there's combination of predisposition and um, an environmental factor. So that's good to know. And I'll tell you how I got interested in this. I had a couple of patients present to me in very similar ways, which really baffled me because they were coming in. It was it was male, generally speaking, a couple of young patients, young male patients um, with pelvic floor issues, with a kind of mental health anxiety or depression. Um, there was some cardiac involvement as well in the form of tachycardia or arrhythmia. Um, and some sort of GI issue as well, um, GI distress, heartburn, or difficulty digesting, things like that. And so that, you know, I saw that twice and then in a third time with an older patient, but again, all male patients. So, you know, you're not putting pelvic floor issues down to childbirth or any, anything else. So it just really got me thinking as to what this could be. And that's when um, you know, uh, hypermobility came to mind, and that's when I had asked them a couple more questions. And sure enough, they, you know, the answers variably were yes, either a uh, more increased range of motion, so they were able to go further beyond touching their toes, or stretchy skin, or just this ability to various joints could just be uh, hyperextended. And so I found that very interesting. And that's what got me interested in this. So I want to ask you how typically patients present and what type of patients you're seeing in your office and are the patients that I described, is that how typically you're seeing patients? Yes, um, I tend to see more female patients. And I think that's mostly because in general, females tend to go to the doctor more often 
than males. So, but that's great that you've been seeing some males. But when you see patients that have symptoms that just don't make sense, that's a huge red flag. If they have a lot of complex things going on and just none of it's really adding up and maybe they've had normal imaging or normal blood work and so there's nothing that explains what they have going on, again, huge red flag. And so a lot of my patients that come in um, have a multitude of multi-systemic things going on. They often have headaches. They often have joint pain, but they also usually have some sort of either GI issues going on, like you said, um, or pelvic floor bladder dysfunction. Sometimes um, they're dealing with a lot of fatigue or difficulty getting through the day for no reason, even if they get good amounts of sleep. These patients are patients that get injured really easily. Um, They They have multiple sprain strains in their history. They bruise really easily. They may have the stretchy skin or the joints that just move a lot, or they've been going to doctor to doctor to doctor and kind of been jumping around, or they may have pain that migrates throughout their body and doesn't really stay in one place. All of those are kind of red flags, as well as if people have said that they have been to physical therapy and it's made them worse, that's a huge red flag that they may have a connective tissue disorder going on because most often these patients will attend physical therapy at some point throughout their life. And if it's not a physical therapist that is trained in connective tissue disorders, most of the time they'll react negatively to that. Um, So, and especially in the case of your patients that you were talking about, if you see a male that has pelvic floor issues, again, that's a huge red flag. Women, you see that a lot more often because of pregnancy, but when that happens in a male, um, that's definitely cause for concern. Yeah. And and that was exactly how I was looking at it because it just wasn't making sense otherwise. I mean, you can make sense of the connection between GI issues and anxiety and GI issues and uh, other things and just put, put that all together. But just when it came to pelvic floor pains, scrotal pain, pelvic issues, it just, you know, it kind of throws you, uh, it's a curveball that gets thrown to you and you just don't know which way to, to turn in that case. So that's certainly challenging. Um, and to that point, you know, when it, when obviously we see complex patients every day, that's the nature of what we're doing. But in many cases, the way that this is different is that when you see a complex patient otherwise outside of the hypermobility syndrome uh, category, then you're able to try to get down to some root of the issue. You know, when you're talking about autoimmune conditions, that's how autoimmune patients present. They, they go from doctor to doctor, not knowing what's the cause of their fatigue and uh, all of these things. And you do run certain tests and you get an autoimmune condition that shows up. But the difference here, or the other thing also is that even if you can't get to the exact cause, when you try to make a treatment, a systematic treatment, then you do see them get better over time. Usually when you try to do things like diet, lifestyle, um, you know, using certain things to improve their immune system, regulate their immune system, you do see them get better generally. But in the case of hypermobility syndrome, I think the difference is that 
you you know the the therapies are quite different in certain respects and so you may not see uh, an improvement in these patients and like to, to your point when they go to a physical therapist they get even worse so that's the challenge i think is not just getting down to the cause but to try to find therapies that that can help these patients which otherwise um you know may not help like diet and lifestyle which you know um in a lot of patients does help them so now i want to uh shift a little bit and ask you about this different subtypes you mentioned earlier that there are about 13 different subtypes of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and one type can look very different from the other type so do we um or can you briefly ex explain to us what these different subtypes are and how do you know if you have one of them sure um and just a note on what you were talking about before it is different when it comes to hypermobility because 99% of the time these patients will have imaging and blood work and it will come back completely normal. And I say normal in quotation marks because unless you're a hypermobility specialist or EDS specialist, there's certain things to look out for on imaging and in blood work um, that most people just aren't trained to look for. So most of the time they'll appear normal when really there is an underlying issue going on. You just have to know to look for it. Um, but to your point about the subtypes of EDS, so there's 13 different kinds, 12 of which do have a genetic um, testing available for them. The one that doesn't is called hypermobility EDS. And the only way to diagnose that is clinically by going through the patient's history and um, making an accurate clinical diagnosis on that. Each subtype is different, but each subtype has symptoms that overlap with one another. So even to the most educated and specialized individual working with these patients, it can be really difficult to tease out exactly what subtype a patient may be dealing with, let alone for the patient to try to figure this out themselves. So I always recommend if a patient thinks that they have any type of EDS to go talk to somebody like myself that is trained and that specializes in these disorders, because some of them require genetic testing a little bit more urgently than others. Say, for instance, there's a vascular form of EDS, and the vascular form puts the patient at an increased risk for aortic ruptures. And um, so that's something that if, if we think a patient may have that, we want to be sending them out for genetic testing as soon as possible. Um, Patients that have that type of EDS tend to have a shortened lifespan because of the severity of it, because it's affecting the vasculature all around the heart. Um, and that can be a pretty serious one, whereas some of the other ones don't affect the individual as severely. So it's, like I said, a lot of the symptoms overlap, so it can be really confusing, and it really takes somebody that's trained in it and that has the time to go through and really take a good long look at the patient's history yeah. and their symptoms. Yeah. And that's, you know, you're speaking to probably one of the biggest challenges in this space, which is getting that diagnosis. And so, you know, a, a, a provider like myself is, is not trained in that. So, 
you know, when I tried, let's say with these patients that I mentioned, it, it was always a challenge because there are so few providers well-trained in this. And so if we did find someone, it was like, hey, it's a year, two years long wait list and you have to wait, especially in these big um, centers that are hypermobile centers and they may be out of state even. So that makes it very challenging because then it, it's difficult for the average patient to be able to quickly get a diagnosis or even maybe afford to see someone who can give them a diagnosis. But I think that's where knowing that there are certain questionnaires and, and people like yourself who can go through a history very deeply and come to a clinical diagnosis and then know the right genetic test to do is very important. So that I think is one of probably the key takeaways from, from this discussion which is that if you have these symptoms that are that, that don't make sense, that aren't really lining up with one condition or a, a few conditions, then looking into hypermobility is going to be important. And the way to do that is to see a specialist and then to maybe go to do genetic testing after that. So I think that that's a key point that people need to, to understand if they're struggling with this. And it's certainly good education for me because then I'm able to react to these patients much better. So yeah, and each type of subtype of EDS also has major and minor criteria that the patient needs to meet in order to even achieve that clinical um, diagnosis, as well as the one form that doesn't have genetic testing, HEDS, there is a checklist um, for practitioners to use to help come to a clinical diagnosis. But even the steps within that checklist, you have to know how to properly perform those tests and where to measure the person's stretchy skin. And when they're doing the joint hypermobility tests, you know, their arm is supposed to be resting on a table or you're supposed to be measuring from the posterior aspect of the patient. Things like that, it's not as simple as running through the bite and score and saying, oh, okay, you can do this, this, and this you have EDS. And I have a lot of patients that come in that have just been misdiagnosed. It's, it's a lot more complex than we can get into um, on this podcast. And so um, some patients have come in with a, with a diagnosis and I ask what type of exams they've been through and they haven't even been put through a physical exam. So it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky one to know how to properly diagnose. And that's why I just always recommend they go to somebody that specializes in it, because I'd rather have my patients get, get a proper diagnosis than to just get a diagnosis that's incorrect for the sake of getting a diagnosis. But unfortunately, most people take about 30 years to get diagnosed. So I'm trying to shorten that gap. That's a remarkable amount of time. And to your point earlier, I think that the type of physical exam you're talking about is so far outside of the purview of a normal quote unquote physical exam that someone like myself would perform that we just don't have that expertise to do that. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a good insight to understand how complex it is just to diagnose these folks. And 30 years is a, is a long period of time. I think when they talk about autoimmune conditions and di getting diagnosed with that, it's usually uh, could be up to 20 years sometimes getting diagnosed with that, with an autoimmune condition. And so this is even more and probably one of the, the most poorly understood diagnoses there are. So um, a very important part 
of the discussion. So I want to move to asking you now about once you do have someone diagnosed and, or someone has an accurate diagnosis, maybe genetic testing and, and a good physical exam, then what really is out there treatment-wise for them to be able to do? Because sometimes just getting the diagnosis will really help someone understanding what they have and give them explanations. But is there anything practically that can be done for these connective tissue disorders in terms of helping the patient's symptoms? Sure. Once the diagnosis is reached, the biggest aspect of treatment is um, preventative treatment. Uh, These patients are prone to, like I said, having early onset arthritis because of the excessive movement in their joints. So really working on stabilization, working on proprioception, working on relearning how to move properly in their bodies and actually have their muscles fire instead of hanging out in their skeletons and using their ligaments and tendons to support themselves. Um, it's a it's a process even learning how to walk correctly for a lot of these patients. Um, but once they have a diagnosis that's really it's really validating for a lot of patients and allows them to be their own self-advocate and lets them know it's not in their head, which is important for a lot of people. But there are things that can be done, like I said, preventative things, because the disease, the disorder itself is not progressive, but the deconditioning that's associated with it is. Because oftentimes it spirals and people go through flare-ups. And if you don't learn how to control those flare-ups, it's easy to get into a cycle of deconditioning. And then from there, it tends to get worse. So learning how to identify triggers is huge, whether we're talking joint pain or stomach upset or headaches. Um, But also there's a lot of structural things that tend to be associated with connective tissue disorders, such as a Chiari malformation or tethered cord syndrome. And there are surgeries out there that are available to help patients that have that. Unfortunately, like you said, this is a very understudied and under-researched disorder. So a lot of, um, there's not a lot of education out there to let different practitioners know to look for that type of thing. So uh, there is treatment out there that's available. You just have to know where to go and, um, and when it's appropriate. Right. So I guess an understanding that the genetic nature of this condition means that it's something that we can't necessarily, I mean, we, we cannot get rid of it, but we can work on those same preventative and um, core health aspects that we do in, in most conditions of diet and lifestyle um, but in this case, movement is probably much more emphasized and like, like everything you mentioned, learning how to walk properly and all of those things that from a structural perspective are going to be important in these patients. So, Yeah. And the core aspects of health, like you said, are important to work on, but it just looks a little different in patients that have connective tissue disorders. Um, rehab is still important, but it looks a little different. There's things that need to be tweaked when it comes to those core health values. Sure. Is there any um, medications that have been developed or any sort of supplementation, things like that, that might benefit these patients? 
Yes. I'm hesitant to give exact names because every person is different um, and every situation calls for something a little different. But absolutely, um, there's a ton of supplements out there that can help keep the inflammatory component of the disorder under control, as well as um, there's some prescription medications out there now that um, in larger doses are used for addictive tendencies, but in smaller doses have actually been used for chronic pain and have been helpful in a lot of my patients. Um, It allows them to go from a stage of not being able to function to being able to function. So yes, there is. Mm -hmm. They're out there. Yeah. And that's good to know that you make your, you know, you set your expectations from the start. And so it may not be to get back to let's say fully to your baseline, but then to make those progressive small changes to get better and better. And I think that that's really a good aim with these patients. Yes. Yes. And there is even, um, they're working on a new medication for the vascular form of EDS. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're doing a lot of research on that right now. So that's pretty exciting. So they're getting there. It's just a disorder that's not very well funded and they're working right right now. on getting, uh, federal law to pass a hundred million dollar funding proposal. So, yeah. And and that's, that's going to be very important for this condition. And I know we talked offline about the, this last subtype and it's genetic markers being developed and genetic testing being developed. So that's another exciting avenue in the world of hypermobility. Absolutely. Absolutely. As of the last conference that I went to, they were about six months out from finding um, the gene that they believe is associated with with the hypermobile form of EDS. And so hopefully within the next year, they're going to have that gene and they're going to start the validation process. Mm-hmm. And I'm hopeful by next year that they'll have all of that finalized and patients will be able to get a full uh, genetic panel mm-hmm. done that would be able to test for all 13 subtypes. Yeah, that would be very interesting. And I look forward to hearing more about that. And so um, the last question I wanted to ask you was around the type of providers that generally deal with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And so uh, I think it'll be useful for people to understand who from the medical community is really dealing with this and who are the folks that are specialized in it. If you go through, let's say, um, an MD route, are you seeing a lot of MDs that are maybe rheumatologist, and then they're going more subspecializing in connective tissue disorders? Or are you seeing that more of the um, chiropractic side is uh, those specialists are coming from there? So a great resource for patients and providers to find someone that specializes in connective tissue disorders is actually the Eller Stanlos Society's website. They have a provider directory that will list the providers in each state that specialize in it and what what aspects of it they specialize in. But when I participate in these um, panels, it's medical professionals from all different disciplines. And I would say the number one discipline that participates in that program is physical therapists, followed by occupational therapists, speech therapists, um, and a couple of nutritionists, a couple of chiropractors, some MDs, but really any specialty doctor is going to be seeing these patients. It's just whether or not they're able to pick up on it or not. 
Um, a lot of my patients, the doctors that they do tend to see the most, like I said, PT, OT, ortho, um, neurology, rheumatology is huge. Mental health therapists, because a lot of these patients are dealing with anxiety, depression, and PTSD related to their condition. Um, chiropractors, absolutely. Primary care doctors are huge, MDs, because when a patient has all of this going on, yeah. who do they go to? They go to their primary care doctor as a resource. And they have expectations of their primary care doctor being able to direct them on where to go. Yeah. Um, because for most people, their primary care doctor is their central hub when it comes to their health. Um, so they play a huge part um, in triaging appropriately. But also even endocrinologists and sometimes coaches, athletic trainers, gymnastic coaches, they're all working with us. We're all working with it. It's just a matter of recognizing it. Yeah. Especially massage therapists too. Yeah. And, and that's why this education is so important. So you can pick up on these subtle traits, these subtle symptoms and signs that these patients have. I think one of the biggest clues was when I was seeing my patients was that he mentioned that he worked with a physical therapist and the physical therapist was concerned about hypermobility or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome as well. So, you know, that kind of clued me into another um, uh, push in that direction. So certainly very important to have all these different specialties working together in harmony so that these patients can get good care. Yeah. And it's, it's usually the patients that come to me usually know they have some sort of connective tissue disorder because they've been told by their PT or their massage therapist. They've usually been told by somebody, I think your joints move a little bit more than normal, or there's something a little off about how you're responding to care. And I, I think you might have something going on with your joints. Um, only about 10% of my patients come in with no clue that they have a connective tissue disorder. Um, but at the same time, it's really hard for people that have it to pick up on because how they move and their range of motion is their normal. It's all yeah. that they've ever known. Right. So they don't know that the way that they move is abnormal until somebody like a physical therapist points it out mm -hmm. to them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So very important to, to know that, know those signs. So, and I mean, one huge thing that any practitioner can look for is look at people's knees. If their knees are hyperextending, look at their elbows. If their elbows are hyperextending and their knees are hyperextending, that's something you want to yeah. dive a little deeper into. Yeah, you can be pretty sure that there's something going on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been a great discussion and I really appreciate your time and your education around this. Um, it's such a needed topic to discuss and to educate more on and, and for all of us to participate so these patients can get some the right diagnosis and get some relief. So I appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm always happy to answer any questions that any practitioners may have regarding connective tissues or the diagnosis process, um, or if they would like me to create a prescription pad for their office with the clinical signs and mm -hmm. symptoms that they may see, I'm happy to do that. Anything to help in, in the, um, you know, 
the exposure of this disorder and just help everybody learn more about it, I'm happy yeah. to help in any way that I can. Absolutely. And I'll include the links to, um, to your website and all your details in the show notes. And so people can reach out to you that way and hopefully get good care. Okay. Sounds great. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. If you liked this episode, please share with your friends and family, and please remember to subscribe so we can share this message with as many people as possible.